there. Thanks for joining me for the fifth episode of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five O podcast. I am your wet and woolly host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. This episode will cover first season episodes eight, The Ways of Love, and episode nine, No Blue Skies. And they're being covered from the exotic location of my cousin's kitchen table because I'm house-sitting and decided to make the most of it by recording a, an episode of Bookum Dano. So the background noises, the ambient noises are going to be different. You're not going to get that weird echo that you usually have when I'm recording in the box room, which is, you know, half-finished. I'm actually in a fully furnished house. But in, in house sitting, I'm also pet sitting. She has a cat and two dogs. You're going to hear probably the dogs walking around and their dog tags because they're like basically little bells because my cousin lives out in the country. So you got to know where the dogs are. You just listen for the dog tags. I'm pretty sure the refrigerator was running for most of the recording. And no, I didn't go catch it, you weirdos. It was running in place. So we'll see how all of that goes. I also actually wrote synopsis for both of the episodes that I'm going to be talking about, um, which is something I've actually been meaning to do since, I don't know, the beginning, but I've been too lazy to do it. But enough of this, that, and the other. Let's go to Hawaii. Dear Dave, the ways of love are strange. Vows of love. Familiar? What? Episode 8, The Ways of Love, air date November 21st, 1968, directed by Charles S. Dubin, who directed a total of 24 episodes for the series, and written by Lawrence Heath. This is his only episode. The police are pursuing a car driven by a young blonde man who has an unconscious woman as a passenger. She wakes up, realizes what's going on, fights with the driver, and then steps out. Unfortunately, she does this at high speed. The cops stop their pursuit, allowing the blonde man to get away in order to help the young woman, and they end up calling 5-0 because the girl is wearing an earring from a recent jewel robbery. Steve attempts to question the young woman, but all she says is the ways of love, and then she dies. The earring is from a stolen set of crown jewels that were on loan for display from another country. The representative from this country is pretty pissy about the theft and the lack of progress in the case, and even though the girl didn't tell them much, Steve still sees this as a lead. Danny talks to the young woman's landlady. She says that the young woman, Celeste Caro, was a very good girl and this was the first trouble she's had. She tells him that she heard screaming, called the cops. She then saw Celeste being dragged to a car by the blonde man that she'd seen a couple of times before. Inside, a search of the place turns up a cryptic letter mentioning the ways of love, and the letter is addressed to a man named Dave Barca. Kono ends up running a make on him. Chin Ho also finds something odd in Celeste's house, unexposed x-ray film. Back at 5-0 headquarters, the attorney general is all over Steve about these missing crown jewels because of the international pressure, which he is clearly cracking under, but Steve is not. Danny helps ease the Attorney General's mind because it turns out that Dave Barca is an inmate in a California jail. He was picked up in Honolulu on a fugitive warrant for parole violations two days after the Crown Jewel robbery. The Attorney General feels strongly that the guy could be involved, but Steve doesn't think he'll talk to just anyone. So... Steve goes undercover as an armed robber named Steve Crawley, Dave Barca's new cellmate. Steve does most of the talking since Barca has no inclination to say a word. 
Meanwhile, scuba divers find the car that Celescaro jumped from, and after it's pulled from the water, they find x-ray equipment in the trunk. It's the kind that could be used by builders to determine seal strength in buildings. It could also be used to look through steel. Danny and the Attorney General test it on the Attorney General's safe and find that it was probably how the thieves stole the jewels because taking the x-ray of the safe shows them where the tumblers on the safe were so they could crack the combination. Back in the California pen, Steve arranges for Barca to hear a news broadcast about Celeste's death, which upsets him. He then goes to see a dentist, in quotes, about a bad tooth. There he meets with the deputy captain he's working with to arrange his escape, with Steve insisting everything be kept as normal as possible so Barca won't get wise. Back in his cell, Barca sees that Steve now has a shank and bargains with him to, to escape with him. When they're both being transferred for their hearings, they overpower a guard in the jail's elevator, take his keys, head for the roof, and shitty down a drain pipe. They make a break for it with guards throwing shots over their heads. They stop by Steve's girl's place, again that's in quotes, to get some cash and plot their next move. Steve explains that because he was in the service, he knows how to use military transports to, to fly for free. Varga insists they go to Hawaii, saying no one will look for them there, and he'll make it worth Steve's while. So they phony up some travel orders and get some uniforms. While Steve is on the land back to Hawaii, the body of an x-ray specialist turns up on the beach. A bunko wrap connects him with a guy named Dan Larson, who fits the description of the blonde man who took Celeste. They find him, but wait on going after him until they hear from Steve. When Steve arrives with Barca, Danny and Kono follow the pair to a boat where Barca had stashed the jewels, only the jewels aren't there. And Barca knows who took them. He hands Steve a gun and promises $25,000 if he brings him Dan Larson. Now, this episode could easily be forgettable if it wasn't for two things. One, the opening scene, because we witness the fight in the car between Dan Larson and Celeste Caro, and she throws herself out of the vehicle to get away from him, which is jarring. It's, you definitely don't expect that to happen. And we also get Steve undercover, which I'm going to talk about at length because it is a beautiful and wonderful thing that I think should definitely be experienced. And it's not gonna be the only time we ever see Steve go undercover, but it's the first time and your first time is always so special. But let's go back to that opening scene again real quick. First of all, Dan Larson is, is played by Don Knight. And I just wanna mention really quick, Don Knight in my world occupies a very specific space along with uh, William Smith, Joanne Linville, and Louise Sorrell in that when I see them, I immediately recognize them. I know exactly who they are. I can tell you exactly where I know them from. I can tell you what they've been in. And yet I cannot remember their names for the life of me. All four of them will be in episodes of, of Hawaii Five Out before we're done. But it's just the most annoying facet of my brain that I can never remember their names when I see them. Like I said, can tell you what they were in, but their names always elude me. So there's your random little Kiki Rights trivia. But anyway, we see in this opening scene, we see Dan Larson with Celeste, an unconscious Celeste Caro. She's been roughed up a little bit and he's concentrating on getting away. She wakes up, starts fighting with him. He manages to, to fend her off. And then suddenly she turns, opens the door and just gets out, which horrifies him as much as it horrifies everyone else. She goes tumbling along the road. Of course, he doesn't stop because he needs to get away, but the cops do. 
and it's clear that she's in a in a state and you can tell because she's covered in sand because she's hit the side of the road and rolled a few times and one thing I love about older shows when they started using blood because that wasn't always a given I mean how many westerns have you watched where people get shot and none of them bleed when they started using blood a little bit more, shows like Hawaii Five-O, they, it basically just looks like red paint. Red, I always think of it as red nail polish. That's what it looks like. And so she has these artful streaks of red, what's supposed to be blood, on her face. Of course, the, the ambulance shows up, Five-O shows up, and a doctor shows up. Because if you watch Emergency, you'll know paramedics really weren't a thing to like the 70s. So this is pre-paramedic time where ambulance, the ambulances just showed up basically threw you on a gurney and got you to the hospital as fast as they could. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, first aid happening. And I'm guessing the police were able to call in a doctor and say, hey, come look at this, this chick who threw herself out of this car at high speeds, which wasn't really high speeds when they did the stunt because it was a physical, it was an actual physical stunt, but you can tell the film's been speeded up a little bit to make it look worse than it was. But still, it's, it's really impressive. But anyway, the doctor shows up, and Steve asks the doctor if, if, he, if she's going to make it or what's her chances, and he just shakes her head, so you know she's had a really bad spill. But Steve still questions her, and credit to the actress, I mean, she has this weird-looking paint happening on her face, and yet she still manages to portray a dying woman quite well. And like I said, all she says is the ways of love. That's all she can tell Steve before she, she dies. The representative from the unnamed country who whose crown jewels have been stolen truly does not give a shit. He couldn't care less that this young woman has just expired in front of him. He's like, great, we got an earring back. Where's the rest of it and why haven't you found it? It's been eight days. What the hell are you doing? So you can probably understand why the Attorney General, when he shows up in Steve's office, is looking so frazzled and so under pressure because he probably has this dude calling his office like every two hours going, where's my jewelry? Where is my jewelry? And just being a total nuisance about it, that's going to wear on anybody's nerves, to be quite honest. And it also makes for a great juxtaposition when you see how cool and calm and collected Steve is saying, yes, here's what we have. We've got some latent prints, but nothing definitive. And we're running a check on this, that, and the other. I mean, he's, he's like, he's still going by the book. The pressure doesn't get to him because as he says, I'm a cop, this is what we deal with. He's like, basically he's kind of insinuating like, you're always down my back about stuff. So this is nothing new. And honestly, the case itself isn't really that interesting. Once again, we have that explosive start. And then the case, I mean, we do go through things. It does take some twists that you don't expect. Nobody's going to expect pulling the, that car out of the water and finding x-ray equipment in it. And finding the x-ray plates at Celeste's house. It is That is a great, like, what the hell is this kind of a thing. As for the stolen crown jewels, you kind of don't care. And the investigation is... I don't want to say it's routine because we do have the twist with the x-ray and them figuring out the the x-ray thing, but the the investigation itself kind of takes a back seat to what is going on with Steve and Barca in California and how they're getting back to Hawaii. But we do get Danny interviewing Celeste's landlady and she is wearing the most glorious muumuu I have ever seen. It's just, it's beautiful and we all know that my goal is to go to Hawaii so I can wear muumuus 
all the time and I think I can comfortably put landlady as a career in which I can wear moos while living in Hawaii. I'll just add that to the list. And watching them crack the code of the x-rays, testing the x-ray equipment and on, on the Attorney General's safe, it was probably very high tech watching this back in 1968. As I'm recording this in 2018, it looks very different because the crown jewels would have been stolen in a, in a much different way than what we saw. But for 1968, this is really good. And also watching them solve this puzzle from the 2019 vantage point, it's actually pretty clever that they, they actually set it up and tested it on an actual safe. And then you hear them as they're standing there with this x-ray equipment, they have an x-ray tech there, and everything is set up and they're they're actually taking this x-ray through a wall as well and the x-ray tech says but right before he does the test he he tells everybody else in the room you'll probably be fine if you stand where you are because of the radiation so that's fun and then there's also the dead x-ray technician he has a name i can't remember what it is we only see him when he's dead but they realize i guess that he's linked to this obviously dead x-ray tech we find x-ray equipment this is probably more than a coincidence and it's fun because while they're running a make on him on this dead guy danny is going through the guy's dress book which was apparently in his pocket when he was checked into the ocean because he washes up on a beach and he's painstakingly going through this soaked smeared address book looking for any any salvageable information now we would just plug his name into Google or trace his laptop or his social media or something like that and be able to find all of this information. But back then, no, you had to go through a soggy address book. And I can't remember if it's Kono or Chinho that comes up with the information, but they find that the guy does have a record in that he, he has one bunco arrest for falsifying x-ray plates for an insurance scam. And that's connected to Dan Larson. Dan Larson was in the British military and what was his specialty? It was, he was an x-ray specialist. Again, I think this is a coincidence. And that happens to be like the one name that's not marred in this soaked address book. How convenient. So that all plays out against Steve's undercover work in California. Hi, pal. Name's Crowley, Steve Crowley, what's yours? Now this is the highlight of the episode. And I think it's also valuable evidence that Steve McGarrett was actually a theater geek. We've already seen in previous episodes that he can deliver a, a, a poetic turn of phrase. When he's talking to Danny about shooting somebody, it should he says it should always tear your guts out. Um, we've seen that he has a tendency towards the dramatic, the writing uh, Chin Ho's name on the guy's desk blotter and telling him he, he should remember that name. We will see that he has a flair for poetry later on, which I believe is because Jack Lord uh, really enjoyed poetry. But his enthusiasm in which he throws himself into this undercover role and subsequent undercover roles is truly, truly magical and definitely tells me that the man was a theater geek. Steve Crawley is very different from Steve McGarrett still believable but just a totally different character. I tend to think of McGarrett as being kind of uptight. Steve Crowley is played very much very loose. At one point when he he has a little transistor radio 
he turns it on to some music before he turns it on to the broadcast so Barca can hear about Celeste's death. He turns it on to some music and he, he dances a little bit, which is embarrassing for us all. But the fact that he was loose enough to do that, it showed how dedicated Megara was to making this character believable, that this character obviously didn't care that he looked like a fool. The guy nonstop talks and he has sound effects when he talks. It's just someone so completely removed from the very professional business-like Steve McGarrett that we know. My girl says, why don't you grab one of them free f flights you're always talking about? Come on out, we'll have a big weekend. So, boom, I fly west 2,000 miles, and what do you think I find when I get there? An empty apartment, a bottle of booze, and a refrigerator full of beer. So I wait, and I wait, and I wait. Nothing happens. Then I start on the boilermakers. Boom, 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 boom. Next thing you know, I wake up, I'm under arrest. <laughs> what can I pull for a rap like that, pal? You're the friendly type, ain't you, pal? <laughs> absolutely brilliant about this and what shows Jack Lord to be such a good actor which I don't think he gets quite enough credit because McCarrot's very uptight and professional and straightforward there's not a whole lot of opportunities for him I guess to really show off the range he makes the most of what he's given but I think there are some constraints with that character and I think just when people think about the show they think about him as being very businesslike and very serious so they don't think he gets the credit that he deserves. But this really, really illustrates just how good Jack Lord was. Because you have the Crawley character that he's portraying undercover, but you never lose McGarrett. Because while he's doing these Crawley things and, and talking like Crawley and saying what he is saying, he's also watching Barkett. He seamlessly goes from being this glib, loquacious criminal, and then you watch him, you know, side-eye to see what kind of reaction he's getting from Barca. You watch him pick his words carefully because he's manipulating Barca into talking. He's manipulating Barca into wanting to escape. He's manipulating Barca into going to Hawaii. And he plays it so beautifully, and you watch him go back and forth so while you have this wild-ass character of Steve Crawley, you never lose McGarrett in that. And you see just how clever McGarrett is by playing this character and manipulating Barca and keeping it as believable as possible because at one point he, when he's discussing the best way to escape, he tells the guy, the deputy captain or whoever, that he, he, doesn't, he wants the same number of guards, he wants to keep everything as normal as possible so they don't tip Barca off. 
He's dedicated to going undercover so he can find these jewels and find the guy who, who possibly killed Celeste Caro. But just the way it's done, the way Jack Lord does it, the way he goes back and forth, the way he never loses McGarrett, it's just so brilliant. It's just, it's such a good piece of acting. And it really does carry the episode. That's what makes this episode, it elevates it. The case itself is kind of interesting with the x-ray twists and everything. And because we do, we spend so much time setting Barca up. So we spend quite a bit of time in jail with Barca and Steve undercover. We see their escape step by step, which leaves me a lot of questions. You're transporting two prisoners who granted are handcuffed together, but there are two prisoners and one guard in an elevator in a prison. Now the elevator is operated by a key. So it's not just buttons. But still, I mean, even handcuffed together, these guys can easily power, overpower that guard, which is what they did. They didn't even use the ship. I don't even know why. I'm guessing that was only introduced to show that he was going to escape. So with the two of them there, I guess they said, well, we'll just overpower the guard. We don't need the ship. But still, we have two inmates and one guard in an enclosed space. Things are not going to go well. We've already seen if they're in jail, they have trouble with voluntary compliance. So there's likely to be difficulty with them voluntary complying to not attacking a guard in a space that obviously can work to their advantage. But I thought it was interesting too that, that instead of going trying to escape through the front door, they went through the roof. And why this elevator went up to the roof, I don't know. But they get up onto the roof space, they, they shinny down a drain pipe and just run hellbent for leather while the guards are quote-unquote shooting at them. Obviously meaning to miss, but definitely adding realism because some of those bullets, the way the squibs were set up, were, came pretty close. And it's once they're out that you realize that all of that non-stop talk wasn't just Steve trying to get Barca to join in on the conversation. He was planting ideas in Barca's head. So Steve's saying that he was in the service he knows how to fly for free, explaining how he got picked up, all of that stuff. So they have a house that they can go to to plot their next move. Barca demanding how to fly for free because they have two uniforms at the house, Steve's uniforms they could both fit in. And Steve still playing Crawley, you know, he's eating a sandwich while just casually saying, well, yeah, all you have to do is this, that, and the other. And in another example of how far we've come technology-wise, his orders, Crawley's last travel orders, they were mimeoed on blank paper. He's like, all we have to do is break into a copy shop and mimeo our own orders, which it would have been done completely differently nowadays. So it was kind of interesting because they do show us that. That's how they get the orders done up so they can fly to Hawaii because they need, it's a Mac flight, so they need special orders for that. So we're actually with those two for quite a while while they're in California. It's once they get hooked back to Hawaii that things really pick up the pace. So that middle part, bouncing between the investigation and the undercover work, it kind of makes the episode feel a little long, but you're still entertained, mostly by Crawley, by Steve's undercover work. So the episode gets to a very fast start with Celeste jumping out of the car and then the, her letter leading them to Barca. And then it really picks up the pace when Steve and Barca get back to Hawaii because Kono and Danny are waiting for him and they follow them. And can I just say, they are not in their traditional suits. They're just wearing like the, the white button downs with the sleeves rolled up and the dress slacks, which I it doesn't matter what decade you're in. It doesn't matter who the man is. That is always a good look. 
and they follow Steve and Barkett to this boat where Barkett's hidden the jewels, and he, he opens up the hidden compartments where the, the jewels should have been, and the jewels aren't there, and he knows Dan Larson is the one that took them. He's just sure of it. They give Steve a, a hidden gun and tells him to go. He'll give him $25,000 if he goes and gets him and brings him to him so they can sweat him out and find out where the jewels are. So, of course, you know, Steve has to say yes. And the one moment, aside from all the Crawley stuff, which some of that is pretty amusing, the one really amusing moment is that because Steve doesn't know where Dan Larson is, but Danny and Kono and Chin Ho all do because they've already found him and they've been sitting on him, watching him. So they know where his place is. So Danny and Kono end up giving Steve a ride to Dan Larson's place. And Steve is in the back seat, like hunkered down. You can only see his eye. He's hiding in the back seat of this car, staking out where, where Dan Larson is. And it, I, it just strikes me as amusing that Steve basically had to get a ride from his team. And he also came up with a clever ploy in order to get uh, Dan Larson to answer the door. And that is he, he pretended to be a drunk who was looking for the girl who lived there. So again, just another piece of evidence suggesting that Steve McGarrett was a theater geek. He was. So even though I endeavor not to give spoilers, I will say that I do like the way that this resolves because it takes one more turn that you don't expect. The ways of love actually does mean something. However, the one question I am left with after watching this episode is what this group of thieves plan to do with these crown jewels if they are so known like they're crown jewels which to be perfectly honest the earring that we saw kind of looked like costume jewelry but we're not gonna judge but you can't just go pawning crown jewels i mean it's like what were they gonna do were they gonna to because you know how are they gonna translate the jewelry into cash were they gonna sell it were they gonna ransom it that's one question that really wasn't addressed, I guess, just because, you know, well, they stole jewelry, so that's worth money, and obviously they will find a way to liquidate that and turn it into cash. I suppose it's not their fault that I'm left wondering how. So let's take a closer look at our guest cast. Dave Barka was played by James Patterson, uh, probably best known as Jeffrey Butler in Silent Night, Deadly Night. He was also Mr. Purdy in the movie In the Heat of the Night. And he's worked with Jack Lord before on the TV show Stony Burke. He also showed up in Flipper, Bonanza, Big Valley, and Mission Impossible. As I said, Larson is played by Don Knight. We'll see him in five more episodes. He's probably best known as Ritter in Swamp Thing. He also showed up in The Apple Dumpling Gang and The Hawaiians with Charlton Heston and a bunch of other Hawaii Five-O regulars. He was also in Codename Diamond Head with Zulu and Harry Indo. According to IMDb, he was uncredited in the role of Chase's father on Manimal. He also played Fletcher on The Immortal. He showed up in Voyagers, Auto Man, The 18, Charlie's Angels, Kojak, Cannon, Bewitched, Big Valley, Bonanza, The Virginian Mannix, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and Magnum P.I. Celeste Carl was played by Josie Over. We'll see her in 15 more episodes. She also did four episodes of Magnum P.I., four episodes of Jake and the Fat Man, and she showed up on Cagney and Lacey, Quincy, and Eight is Enough. The console who was super annoying about the crown jewels, he was played by Ed Fernandez, and we'll see him in 12 more episodes. He also showed up on Magnum P.I., Barnaby Jones, and The Brian Keith Show. The landlady with the fabulous Moo Moo was played by Isabel McCloskey. She was Aunt Hagatha 
in two episodes of Bewitched. She also turned up on Green Acres, The Beverly Hillbillies, Bridget Loves Bernie, The Waltons, The Partridge Family, Mork and Mindy, Little House on the Prairie, and she turned up in the TV movies Deadly Game, Power Within, and Terror Among Us. The Guard was played by Robert Harker. We'll see him in eight more episodes. He also did four episodes of Magnum P.I. and turned up in the TV movies Lost Flight and Blood and Orchids. The X-ray technician was Robert Costa. We'll see him in 11 more episodes. He was also in Hell's Half Acre. The deputy captain was played by Peter Donahoe, and this was his only credit. The priest we see at the end of the episode was played by Howard Miyake. We will see him in one more episode, also playing a priest. Our detective was Eddie Dew. We'll see him in one more episode. He was the narrator of the Living Bible TV series and the Old Testament Scriptures TV series. He has mostly uncredited roles, including uh, stuff in Citizen Kane, Sunset Boulevard, and Them. His credited roles are mostly in westerns. He also directed four episodes of a TV show called Sergeant Preston of the Yukon between 1955 and 1958. Our director, Charles S. Dubin, as I said, he's going to be with us for a while, and he mostly directed TV, probably best known for directing MASH. He did 44 episodes of that show. He also has two acting credits. Oddly enough, one of them is for Hawaii Five-0, a season six episode called Bullet for El Diablo. However, he didn't direct it. Our writer is Lawrence Heath. He mostly wrote for television, including our beloved Woe Fat Kai Days series Khan. He also wrote TV movies and miniseries, including Ski Lift to Death, which um, Made for TV Mayhem covered, and it's, it's a fun one. You should watch that one. He also wrote for Mission Impossible, including an episode called Lover's Knot, which Don Knight was in. But one of his episodes that he wrote for the 66th Mission Impossible was remade for the 88th Mission Impossible. <laughs> And that is The Ways of Love. As I said, Steve McGarrett going undercover carries the whole episode and kind of overwhelms the actual investigation part of it. It feels long in the middle, but like I said, you're going to be entertained throughout. It's definitely worth your time. Give this one a watch. You won't regret it. Mr. McGarrett, when your country invited us to exhibit our crown jewels here in Hawaii, we were assured that they would be safe. You cannot blame our people for being unhappy about this situation. We haven't exactly been overjoyed, sir. No, baby, no. Don't blue sky me, Joey. Listen. Listen to me. No more blue skies, Joey. No more snow jobs. Not this once. Let's put it right where it is. That officer, McGarrett, is going to put us both in jail. No, baby, no, because my luck's turning. I just started a winning streak, and no two-bit cop's gonna stop me now. Episode 9, No Blue Skies. Air date, December 3rd, 1968. Directed by Herschel Daughtry. This is his second of five. And written by Herman Groves. His second of five. And we actually have seen this team before. They did Strangers in Our Own Land. A cat burglar rappels down the side of a hotel gets onto a balcony, slips into a room, and after some rifling through the belongings, steals some jewelry, leaving by the door. He stashes the jewelry in the trunk of a car and then heads to a club to sing, as you do. Steve arrives at the hotel and gets filled in by Lieutenant Wilson. The M.O. fits a rash of burglaries that have happened in Oahu, Maui, and Kauai. 
Back at the club, the cat burglar slash singer, Joey Rand, finishes his set and his friend Paul lets him know that his girl Valerie called to say that she got hung up in Maui and her roommate Sarah will be doing the job. Joey's not too happy to hear that because the roommate is, in his words, a screwball. He calls Nemo Linkoa, the man that Sarah is supposed to be delivering the goods to, asks if she's been there. When he says no, Joey tells Nemo what's going on and tells him to go over to the house to check in with Sarah, but not to get too rough with her. Nemo isn't a good listener because he goes to the house, finds the roommate gone and evidence that she's trying to get off the island. So he goes to the airport, confronts her, kills her, and leaves with the stolen jewelry. He also leaves behind an earring and a witness. Chin Ho talks to the old Chinese man who saw the killing while Steve goes to the victim's address and talks to her roommate Valerie. She says that she hasn't seen Sarah since she went to work and doesn't know anyone who'd want to hurt her. A search of Sarah's room shows evidence that she was in the process of splitting something else Valerie didn't know. Valerie goes to Joey, upset and feeling guilty. Joey says it was Valerie's fault for bringing Sarah in and Sarah's fault for looking in the bag and trying to go on the run with the jewels. He didn't want Nemo to kill her. Valerie begs Joey to get out of this before someone else, namely one of them, gets hurt, killed, or worse, busted, but he can't. They have to hang on until his record comes out. It'll be a hit, they can pay off his debts, and it'll be blue skies. It's a huge gamble, and this scene drives home the gambling theme. Chin Ho helps the witness come up with a composite drawing of the killer that's supposed to look like Nemo Linkoa. So Steve and Kona go to fetch him. A small fight breaks out, but it's handled and Nemo is taken into custody. Valerie informs Joey that Nemo got arrested because they called her to come down and view the lineup to see if she's ever seen him with Sarah before. Joey tells her that she doesn't know anything and that's what she plays when she does view the lineup. However, the old man is too afraid of reprisal to look at the lineup. Steve hopes that he'll have a change of heart that lets him go along with someone to watch over him. Val calls Joey and Paul and lets them know that everything is cool. Joey feels so good about this change of luck that he decides to go gambling, throwing a pair of dice as he leaves his dressing room, yelling, natural seven. But to Paul's horror, Joey actually rolled snake eyes, which turned out to be accurate. Lady Luck didn't follow Joey to the game, where not only does he lose big, but also finds out that a collector is in Oahu looking for him. He's a dead man. Joey and Val are both in the police station because Joey's car that he reported stolen has been recovered and the only prints in it are the dead roommates, Sarah's. Val says she borrowed the car and it was gone when she got back from Maui. She thought Joey had taken it back and didn't realize until she called him that he hadn't. It never occurred to her that Sarah took it. Steve isn't quite buying their story and asks for the full report on Joey Rand. Steve decides to release Kimo with Kono and Dano following him. Kimo goes to a souvenir shop that puts the stolen jewelry into costume jewelry so that it can be shipped undetected to the mainland and then sold. Kimo takes his cut and leaves but realizes something is wrong when he spots Dano moving into position outside. Kimo goes up on the roof at, with a gun as Steve rolls up. Kimo almost gets the drop on Danny but Steve takes Kimo out. Steve gets the background on Joey Rand. He was a rigger in a carnival, good training for a cat burglar, and did time for manslaughter. He's also in debt for $200,000 to a mainland gambling syndicate. Steve goes to Valerie and tells her that he's on to them, that there's a contract out on Joey, and as soon as Joey gets the money, he'll ditch her. Valerie goes to Joey with this, and Joey reassures her. Once she leaves, Joey asks Paul to do him a favor. 
Now between Sal Minio in the Tiger by the Tail episode and Joey Rand here in this episode, I'm starting to believe that Don Ho may be the only singer in Hawaii without some sort of criminal activity happening. It's a pretty easy conclusion to jump to considering we've already had, this is the first season we've already had two singers up to no good and two episodes in a row involving jewel theft. But the two episodes feel very different whereas in The Ways of Love, the theft of the crown jewels was almost background, where in this case, it's very much an integral part of what's happening and how things play out. And we end up spending a lot of time with Joey, with Valerie, and sometime with Paul, getting their side of the story, basically. On the flip side, there's actually not... I want to say that obviously there's equal screen time with our main stars, Though I don't think Kono has a line in the whole episode. He's there, but I don't think he ever speaks. We don't we see more of how the the criminals are handling things, humanizing them, and it's played against the investigation of how watching how Steve and Fibo try to figure out who their cat burglar is which takes a turn when Sarah the roommate is murdered because she's found with some stolen jewelry. So now we're trying to tie in how Sarah fits into this cat burglar who's obviously operating not only in Oahu but in Maui and Kauai. So you get to see how Steve and Fibo, how they piece together the puzzle when you already know what the puzzle looks like. We know how all of these pieces fit. And the reason why we know how all of those puzzle pieces fit together is because of how much time we spend with Joey. And I think part of that is supposed to not only give us information that we Garrett and Five O don't have, which makes it more interesting to watch them try to solve things and really how much luck is involved in them being able to put things together in this case. But also, I think it's supposed to give you more sympathy for Joey. I think you're supposed to be sympathetic towards him. It doesn't really work very well for me because it's obvious that the man is a gambling addict which addiction is regardless of what kind it is can be a very debilitating disorder and obviously he needs help for that he admits that he needs help for that and yet he is still compelled even when he is in debt up to king kong's eyeballs with some really dangerous people he's still compelled to go play cards and carries dice with him that he rolls. That's how much of, of a fiend he is for it. But he also has this uncanny knack of treating other people sort of less than, which makes him... Because you can be sympathetic toward the gambling addiction, but it's really hard to be sympathetic with him when he's a total dick to Valerie after her roommate was murdered because, you know, she tried to run off with this stolen merchandise and Nemo killed her. Maybe a hit. It will be a hit. I know it. I feel it. 
That's what we're buying, baby. Time. Time for the career to really start taking off. And I can go to those hoods and offer them a piece of my action. Anything to get them off my back. And while we're buying time, Joey, who's the next victim? Huh? You're a gambler. Do you fall off a roof? Or do I wind up with a knife in my back? Or like Sarah? You brought her into the act. You. Do you think I wanted that ape to kill her? Do you? Nobody made her open the bag. Nobody made her try to get off this rock with the whole bundle. She gambled and lost. And I can bleed for her a little. Because I've been there. Joey, there's gotta be another way. There's gotta be another way. Sooner or later, they're gonna find out I've been getting those room numbers for you. Baby, listen, listen, listen. You know my manager, Lou. He's turning down offers, Val. Vegas, at twice the loot I've ever gotten. The best places in L.A. And Lou's turning him down. He's gambling that this record's gonna take off on the charts and we're in orbit. Then we can name our own numbers. Two thousand, three, five thousand a week. Joey, it's a dream. It happens, Val. It happens to guys can't hold my guitar. It happened to me. Here on in at 7-Eleven. completely shifts any blame for any of it from himself to Valerie to Sarah and to Nemo. He is an innocent bystander in all of this instead of being the central figure that if he wasn't in debt having to pull off these robberies if he hadn't brought Valerie into the act because that's what he keeps that's what he says about Sarah that she brought her into the act. If he hadn't done that if he hadn't called Nemo He's the central figure in in this, and yet he pretends to be or acts as though he is an innocent bystander in all of this. It's very characteristic, I suppose, in some cases with addiction, but it's also just like a major personality flaw that it's like, you're kind of a jerk. And he is kind of a jerk. I mean, he is like bold-faced, basically blaming Valerie for the death of her roommate and completely unapologetic about it and you know he says with something about his heart bleeding for sarah it's like that is so unconvincing you don't give a shit about this dead woman also in this scene if you listen to the sound clip count how many times they say gambling it is the gutta percha of this particular episode joey's gambling his manager is gambling sarah took a gamble everybody's gambling we get it we 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 get it we get we got it we're good and while part of this time is also spent with valerie and you can sympathize a little bit more with valerie because she's obviously very upset that her actions and joey's actions led to the death of her roommate she doesn't like being involved in this scheme she's very torn up about everything that's happened you also kind of don't feel bad for her because 
while she's totally in love with Joey, she on some level knows that he doesn't love her back in the same way and that that he's mostly using her. She calls him out on that at one point and then later Steve lays it out like it's so obvious. So as much as she loves Joey and as torn up as she feels about it, you're, you're kind of like, well, you, you sort of put yourself into this position. You could have walked away. You know better. Really, out of the trio, the only one you feel bad for is Paul because he's loyal to Joey. He just wants to get in on the ground floor of what's sure to be a, a stellar career for Joey Rand. And he has great pants. Yes, he ends up making poor decisions later on, but of the three, you're a little more sympathetic with Paul. Now on the investigation side, we see Steve working more with uh, the lieutenant from the hotel than with the rest of his team. Shin Ho is there. Like I said, I don't think can't, Kono had a line even though Kono was there. Danny was there. But Danny and Kono weren't there a lot. They had a few scenes. But it, it seemed like Steve was working more with the lieutenant. And Shin Ho was mostly there to translate for, I think his name's Ming Lu, our... our elderly Chinese gentleman who was the witness to Sarah's murder because he only spoke Chinese. Which, as an aside, I love it when Chin Ho speaks Chinese. As someone who studies other languages as a hobby, and please don't ask me to speak any of them because I'm not good at learning other languages, but I enjoy it. I like listening to other people speak in other languages, so I always love it when Chin Ho gets to speak Chinese. And really, both Chin Ho and, and Steve were very sweet with this this man who was very helpful up to a point. I mean, he came up with the composite drawing, which it was like the old school, they have the file box of features and you just you piece together a face and it was supposed to look like Nemo Lincoa and it, it, it did not look that much like Nemo Lincoa. But they were very sweet with him with that. And Steve was very kind with him when it came time to do a lineup and he didn't want to do it. Steve, your man is scared. What's the story? He doesn't want to get involved. Tell him he'll be given police protection. Says he do no good. He knows nothing. Tell him we need his help. He's the only one who can identify the murderer. Thank you, Mr. Liu. Talk to him some more. Maybe he'll develop a public conscience. Huh? When you release him, I want a man with him 24 hours a day. Okay. Come on, old man. Let's go. Obviously, there was some frustration there. Chin Ho tried to talk him into doing it. Steve tried to talk him into doing it through Chin Ho. But, it, and it's very reflective of reality that people are, especially older people, are very afraid of reprisal. That guy saw him. So he doesn't want this guy knowing that he's the one that picked him out of the lineup. And it's all very understandable. And what was nice about that scene was that instead of Steve getting pissy, throwing a fit, forcing the guy, or trying to strong arm the guy into making the identification, instead he's like, okay, maybe he'll have a ch change of heart when he leaves. Let's have someone with him so he's protected because he offered him protection and Ming Lu didn't think it would be good enough. So even though he isn't cooperating, isn't going to do the lineup, just in case and to show that Steve meant what he said, 
he's going to have someone keep an eye on him 24-7. Steve is an interesting balance of hardline and soft heart. And I would be remiss if I did not mention when they go to pick up Nemo Linkoa so he can participate in this lineup. Steve and Kona go to get him and he's sitting in a bar somewhere with some, some buddies. As soon as Steve says he's 5-0, Nemo punches him in the gut and a small fight breaks out. And it's beautiful because Nemo goes after Steve. Kono flips the table and knocks the other two guys over. Steve fights with Nemo and there was a karate chop involved, which pleases me. You don't see enough karate chops in fights today. The fights on television today, they're very slick, very choreographed. They've got some real sweet moves in them, but not enough karate chops. Back in the day, you got a karate chop to the neck at least once a fight, and it always fills your heart with joy. But anyway, at one point when Steve is wrestling with Nemo against the wall, one of his buddies comes to help him, and Steve just like kicks him in the gut and sends him flying. And then he gets Nemo down and arrests him, he handcuffs him. I also like how the bartender is watching this whole thing go down like it's just another Tuesday. That guy could not be any more unimpressed. He doesn't even look upset that he's going to have to clean up the mess. So after the failed lineup attempt, because Valerie refused to identify Nemo and Minglu refused to participate, and after Steve decides that there is something fishy with Joey and Val's story regarding Joey's stolen car, Steve lets Nemo go with Dano and Kono following him. And this was actually kind of clever that this operation is working out of a souvenir shop and that they're taking the stolen jewelry and setting it into costume jewelry, which in theory is a great idea. In actual practice, the actual jewelry was so tacky and gaudy you could have passed it off as costume with no problem. That's just me having opinions. But the idea as a scam to take the original jewelry and take the gems out of it and set it as costume jewelry in order to transport it without being noticed to the mainland where gems can be removed and sold. That's actually quite a clever plan. It's better than what we had in the previous episode where we had no plan. They just stole these crown jewels and there was no say of how they were going to get rid of them for cash. Here we have an actual setup. There is a system happening and I thought it was a clever way to get rid of stolen jewelry. But since Nemo's been arrested, he knows the heat's on. He just takes his, his cut, which is like a handful, and says, you know, when the boss checks in, tell him I took my cut and I'm out. Peace. And as he's leaving, he sees Dano out the window. With his gun drawn, he's moving into position. So he knows that something is up. And he gets a gun and, and goes up on the roof. Because Dano's going around the side of the building. He very nearly gets the drop on Danny. But Steve, of course, because he is our valiant hero, and Kono is set up elsewhere because they are anticipating this guy coming out one of the exits and not from above, which is a logical assumption. They're in their places. They don't see him up there, but because Steve is coming up later, he has a different vantage point. He's able to see that, oh no, Nemo is about to get Dano. Steve yelling Danny's name not only gets Danny's attention, but also just attracts Nemo's attention, which provides enough distraction because Nemo tries to shoot Steve, so Steve's able to shoot Nemo. So thanks for your impeccable timing, Steve. It also delivers kind of a visceral gut punch hearing Steve yell Danny's name because Danny's in danger. You feel the bond. Now, ultimately, Nemo's death doesn't really matter because they end up picking up Joey Rand's reported stolen car with dead roommate Sarah's fingerprints in it. Now, this I actually thought was kind of clever on Joey's part 
realizing things have gone wrong that Nemo has killed Sarah because she was trying to escape and she was using his car to do it because that's part of the, the thing was that he left the jewels in his car. So reporting the car stolen is a nice diversion to misdirect any involvement that Joey and Val might have had in this scheme. But Val saying, oh yes, I borrowed the car to do some shopping earlier and I got back from Maui late. The car was gone, but I didn't think anything of it. I thought Joey took it. And when I called Joey at the club, he said he hadn't taken it, but I was so upset about what happened to Sarah. I never even thought about Sarah being the one to have taken it. And when Steve questions why Joey waited until a half an hour, 45 minutes after finding out his car was gone to report to the police, he said he got hung up with some people, so he wasn't able to call. And as Steve points out, the story is all very plausible. It could have worked if they were not dealing with Steve McGarrett. It's like any liar going up against Perry Mason. It probably would have worked if you weren't dealing with Perry Mason. So really, in this case, the whole thing could have worked except that the only luck Joey has is bad, and unfortunately, bad luck is contagious. Let's check out this guest cast act. As I said, Joey Rand was played by Tommy Sands. We'll see him in two more episodes. He was a singer back in the day, and at one time was married to Nancy Sinatra. He was in the 1960 Babes in Toyland with Annette Funicello, and he was also in the movie None But the Brave with father-in-law Frank Sinatra. He also showed up on Wagon Train, Combat, Branded, Bonanza, The Hardy Boys, and Nancy Drew, and he sang on several television shows. Paul was played by Robert Random. He's billed as Bob, so Bob Random, which is like one of the greatest names ever. He was Barnabas Rogers on Iron Horse. He also showed up in seven episodes of Gunsmoke, as well as episodes of Get Christy Love, Cannon, Then Came Bronson, The Virginian, Dick Van Dyke, and Gidget. He also appeared in the movies Tick, 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 Village of the Giants with Johnny Crawford, Ron Howard, and Bill Bridges, and Danger Zones 2 and 3. Valerie Michaels was played by Sandra Smith. We'll see her in one more episode. Uh, she was Sandy Larson on Our Private World, which was a spinoff of As the World Turns. She also played Dr. Lydia Thorpe on The Interns. She was in two episodes of Iron Horse with Bob Random, as well as episodes of Manix, Big Valley, The Wild Wild West, Star Trek, Columbo, Ironside, and The Rockford Files. Nemo Linkoa was played by Clayton Nalui. We'll see him in two more episodes. He was also in an episode of Hawaiian Eye. Ming Lu, our witness, was played by Saigon Wong. This was his only credit. The Chinese gentleman at the poker game was played by Arthur Trask. This was his only credit. Kraus was played by Edward Sheehan. This is his second of 15 episodes. He was also in Samurai. He also showed up on Magnum P.I., and he had a credited role in 12 Hours to Kill. He also apparently had uncredited roles in the movies Two Road Together, Tora, 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 and Girls, Girls, Girls. Lieutenant Wilson was played by Dusty Walker. He showed up in the movie Fort Savage Raiders, and he also showed up on the TV shows 26 Men and The Forsaken Westerns. The dealer at the poker game was Charles Gilbert. We'll see him in two more episodes. He showed up on The Brian Keith Show and also had an uncredited role in Tora Tora Tora. Now, our director was Herschel Daughtry, which we have seen one of his episodes before, as I mentioned, Strangers in Our Own Land. He was basically a career TV director going back to 1952. He worked on stuff like Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Thriller, Bonanza, Emergency, Dr. Kildare, and Wagon Train. 
our writer Herman Groves, whom we've already seen because of Strangers in Our Own Land. He wrote a lot for television, including uh, one episode of Iron Horse with Bob Random, because everything comes back to Bob. He also wrote for Airwolf, Vegas, Hario, Gunsmoke, The Untouchables, Surfside Six, and a short-lived series called 240 Robert with Mark Harmon. It ran for 16 episodes. I firmly believe that Mark Harmon did not have a successful series until he fixed his hair situation because he had some seriously tragic bangs happening through most of the 70s and part of the early 80s. That's just my expert critique. And that's No Blue Skies. It's by no means a bad episode. For me, it's kind of a forgettable, blandish episode. It does have a few moments in it. You do get a lot of Tommy Sands singing, which for someone like me who likes music, that is definitely a bonus. I enjoyed the performance parts, but overall it's just kind of a, it's kind of a meh episode. It's nothing spectacular, I should say, especially compared to the previous episode where we have Steve McGarrett undercover. This definitely feels much less eventful compared to that. So it's not a bad episode. You're not gonna waste your time if you watch it. And like I said, Tommy Sands is a pretty good singer. Well, I think I'm going out of my head. Yes, I think I'm going out of my head. Over you. Over you. I want you to want me. So badly, I can't think of anything but you. And so concludes episode five of Bookum Dano. Thank you so much for joining me. If you'd like to reach out to me online, you can do that at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. There you will find the home base for Bookum Dano. You'll also find all of, all of my Rerun Junkie posts, all of my other posts, links to all of my published work, links to my Patreon. You can buy me a coffee if you'd like. If you'd rather observe me in real time, you can do that on Twitter, at KikiWrites. And just as an official heads up, Bookum Dano is now on iTunes, so you can subscribe and listen there. And that's it for me. Remember, if you're ever in Hawaii, beware of any singers and keep an eye on your jewels. Until next time. Aloha.